We are going to be in Revelation 1 this morning, and I'd love to begin thinking back to a date, August 21st, 2017. You remember where you were? Anybody? I'll give you a couple clues. Your neck was probably um, hurting because it was going back like this. Your eyes were probably squinting. Hopefully you weren't without glasses like this first picture here. Um, Hopefully, instead, you had glasses on like this second picture here. So it was the great American eclipse that took place on August 21st, 2017. Uh, The total eclipse that took place uh, over the continental U.S. You could see the whole thing, uh, regardless of where you were on the East Coast or the West Coast. And it was awe-inspiring. I would assume most of us took time out of work and kind of stepped outside for a minute. Most of us probably didn't think to buy glasses. Maybe some of us did. Um, but man, it was, it was a, a powerful kind of unique moment. If you use binoculars to try to see it, you might not be able to see me right now. But this kind of encounter, it leaves like this lasting imprint on our minds. <clears throat> I remember exactly where I was at the front yard of a friend's house. And, uh, but there's an encounter that John has in Revelation that shocks the apostle and that it, it causes the church in the book of Revelation and the church for us today to be filled with courage. And we're going to look at that this morning. Uh, for those of you that weren't with us last week, I want to catch you up to speed on, on two things. One is we gave out these cards. These are reading cards that you can navigate through. Uh, as we go through our series, they're going to be on a table to the left as you walk out. Grab one uh, so you can be able to kind of navigate through what we're, what we're going through, and you can read through it ahead of time before you get here. Um, so that's that. Uh, and then <clears throat> as we navigated through last week, we talked about what Revelation is. We got to know what it is so we know what it's not. And so it's four things. One, it's a letter. It was written to real people, seven churches throughout uh, Asia Minor. Uh, and so it was written to a specific place, which means um, as we read through this book, it doesn't mean to us what it didn't mean to them. It was written to people. It was a letter. Secondly, it was an apocalypse. And so this book, this uh, apocalyptic book, piece of literature, it causes our imagination to be awakened in ways that other books don't. And so we're going to find that throughout. There's a story that's been created using imagery that's going to awaken things potentially even in our own souls. Uh, So it's a letter, it's an apocalypse. Third, it's a prophecy. And so it's both designed to bring comfort and conviction to us as we navigate through us through it, reminding us to be separate, reminding us to be distinct in this world. And then lastly, it's a liturgy of worship. This book is designed to awaken affection and worship in our hearts for Christ. If you leave this book and you don't know a little bit more about Jesus and your heart isn't a little bit more tender towards him, then maybe you read it wrong. And so those are the four ways we want to approach this book as we navigate through it. A letter, an apocalypse, a prophecy, and a liturgy for worship. So we're going to jump in. I'm going to read the whole text that we're going to be in this morning, and we're just going to chat about it. Um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, it says this. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, 
clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that, are, that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Father, it's my hope as we navigate through this that you would allow us to see Jesus a bit more clearly. I pray you to wake in our hearts this morning as we come with all manner of, of things, pressures of life. Lord, I pray that this would be a, a respite. I pray that you would infuse oxygen into our our souls and allow us to be awakened afresh to who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So John hears a voice like a trumpet. It's piercing. If you have a friend who would come up behind you and had a trumpet and blew it behind your ear, how would that feel? You wouldn't be happy. You would probably be startled. That would be loud. That would be a piercing sound in your ear. And so uh, John hears this loud voice coming from this one that we're going to learn more about in a minute. And so as he turns, he's told to write what he's about to see to these seven churches. Again, it's a letter that he's writing to these churches. And so he turned what we find a lot of times throughout this, this book is you're going to hear that he heard and then he looked. There's going to be a hearing that leads to looking. You're going to see that over and over again. And so he begins to lay out the encounter that he had with Jesus. And so eight times through this text, it says, like, eight times. He isn't a valley girl, okay? He isn't like using like, like, just to like, you know, use like. Like he's not doing that. He's strategically using this word like to compare what he's seeing. He's trying to find language to communicate what's happening in him and what he is seeing. And so he heard a trumpet and then we see what he saw. We'll review it. So seven golden lampstands. Again, some of this is like, what the heck is he talking about? And he explains it at the very end of the text. Seven is a, a number for completeness. So when you read seven, you can imply what that means. It means complete or whole. And so he sees these seven lampstands. And these seven lampstands are seven churches. They are specific, again, churches. But because there's seven, we see kind of a twofold reality. One is it's written to specific churches. We heard the names from the specific places that this letter is going to. So it's specifically to these churches. But seven, because it means complete, it's also relevant for us today. We see that he's the son of man. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. We see that he's clothed with this long robe. And again, if you can use your imagination, he has this long robe with this golden sash that's holding the robe together. The hairs on his head were white as wool. There's this sign of strength and dignity and wisdom and honor. His flame, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Just such unique language that John is using. They were piercing. They're not 
little, not like little fire, literally. Like it's, it's communicating something to us. That his eyes were piercing. It's like they saw right through John. It's like he knew everything about John. There was something that was being communicated about his eyes and the way that he tenderly yet aggressively looked upon John. He's so acquainted with you. The worst of you. The best of you. The same eyes that John saw are the same eyes that look at you. He knows you in and out, and yet he loves you to the uttermost. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. It says that his voice was like the roar of many waters. There was this loud, if you've been to a waterfall before and you've stood next to it, it's this powerful depiction of the way John heard his words echoing in and around him. It says his face was like the sun shining in full strength. It's just a powerful moment, this encounter that John had. This moment is significant for more than two reasons, but at least two. Again, the first is related to this word that John uses that we might bypass, and it's that Jesus is the Son of Man. He's this lampstand. In the middle of the lampstand is one like the Son of Man. What does that mean? Uh, he's referencing something that took place in Daniel. It'll be up um, on the screen here, Daniel chapter 7. It's this, uh, this moment, so 600 plus years prior to, uh, we see this prophecy. At the end of Daniel's life, he, like John, encountered God in a prophetic vision that takes place. In a similar dark time, a similar prophet was encountered by the pre in existent Jesus. And I want to read these verses that take place. It says, As I looked, Daniel speaking, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as wool, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, it, uh, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued uh, and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like what? Like a? Good job, guys. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so he's reflecting upon this well-known text that the listeners would have known when they heard Jesus was the Son of Man. See, in Daniel 7, we meet these four beasts. There are these uh, personifications of these, are these uh, these examples representing four earthly kingdoms. Tradition would say that these four beasts were Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. But at the center of all of these beasts that are happening in this vision that John sees, or that Daniel sees, uh, he sees this one, this ancient of days, and he passes this dominion off to the son of man. 
And it's this picture of uh, this coming day where God would vindicate his people, that he would restore and redeem and bring forth fulfillment that he has promised. And what's interesting in in Daniel 7, we see the Ancient of Days and we see the Son of Man. But in this text in Revelation 1, we see that the Ancient of Days is the Son of Man. There's something that John's communicating to us about the power of Jesus. It's necessary for us as we navigate through this text. The second reason why this is profound is that the readers, when uh, they were going through such trauma and pain being under the rule of Rome, I mean, over the past 30 years for them, again, real people, real men, real women, real kids, the last 30 years has been overwhelming. In 64 AD, Rome was burned. And Nero said, it's the Christian's fault. And so all Christians were persecuted like crazy. They were killed. They were burned at stakes. Mayhem took place in the, in the time in 64 AD in the following decades. And so the Christians that are listening to this revelation are uh, acquainted with the power of Rome. And in moments, wanting to give up, because if they give up and they submit to Rome, they won't be persecuted. But if they stay true to following Jesus, they will be persecuted. So these listeners to the seven churches were all aware of the Roman emperor. And so for, for Jews in the church, they would have seen some of this picture that Jesus is, is as uh, related to a high priest. But for all, they would have seen Jesus as the greater triumphant emperor. See, Rome was so powerful in the first century existed with such strength for over a thousand years. America's been around for 245 years. So Rome's been around for a thousand years, and this empire was dominating the church and the people of God. And these churches hear that John encountered the greater triumphant one, wearing these priestly uh, shoes, these Persian shoes, representing the triumphant power that he has over Rome. We see his white hair, his dignity and honor. The seven stars that he's holding in his hand represent that he has sovereign control over the churches and is protecting them. See, John was on the island of Patmos, and he would not bow his knee to Rome or to the emperors of that day. But when this greater emperor showed up, he fell to the ground in awe and in reverence. Jesus encounters, John encounters Jesus, and he collapses And in his response to this encounter, this supernatural phenomenon, there was no comparison to the eclipse. He falls before John, or John falls before Jesus. This conquering, victorious, triumphant one approaches John, but he does so as John's on the ground. He does so with care. And I don't want us to miss this profound moment when John goes to the ground in reverence and all of what he's experiencing. And what does Jesus do? How does Jesus approach him? He comes to him and he puts his hand upon him. And what are the first words that Jesus says to John? He says, fear not. See, throughout the gospel, specifically in the Bible generally, we hear fear not over and over and over again. I believe it's 365 times we hear fear not in the Bible. And Jesus would regularly say that to his disciples. There's three examples I would give to you. The first in Matthew chapter 14. There's this story of uh, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin and one of his closest friends. He gets uh, beheaded. And Jesus responds, and he says he gets away, and he, he withdraws, and he goes to pray. But the crowds chase him down. 
And so he ends up feeding several thousand people uh, because they were hungry. And that night, he says, tells his disciples to, to go away to the other side of the lake and he's going to withdraw and he's going to pray. And he's just processing real emotions of one of his closest friends dying. And as he's walking, he decides to walk on the water. And so his friends are out on the boat, and they see him walking as he's just processing these, these painful moments of experiencing the death of one of his closest friends. And his disciples begin to freak out, as we all would. And they begin to say, it's a ghost. What the heck is happening? And Jesus' words to them on that lake were, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then Peter takes this courage from knowing he doesn't have to be afraid. And he says, can I walk out there with you? And we know the rest of the story. He tries and then he falls in the water and Jesus saves his life. That's the first example of Jesus saying, do not be afraid. And Matthew 17 would be the second, the story of the transfiguration. This moment where Jesus, uh, it's like the glory gets turned on. And he's on this hill, and all of a sudden he transfigures before some of his closest disciples. John, who wrote Revelation, was there. And after they fell to the ground, after seeing his power, Jesus' first words to his disciples that were there was, rise and have no fear. And lastly, the last one I would give, in a moment where Jesus is teaching in Luke 12 around anxiety, he says these words in Luke 12, 30 and following. He says, For all the nations of the world seek after these things, which are the worries of this world. And your, father's, your father knows what you need, that you need them. Instead, seek first his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And then this, fear, fast forward a little bit, it says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So Jesus, in all of these examples, he continues to say, fear not. I know that uh, some anxiety is, it comes from trauma that we experience. But some anxiety occurs because we simply don't trust that God cares for us. So we take on the responsibility of God on ourselves. And it becomes crushing to us. When we carry the weight of this world and the cares that we feel like we need to carry, when God wants to carry those for us, we put them on ourselves and we begin to feel the crushing weight of anxiety. And Jesus says, fear not, little flock. Such kind words. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, there is a God and we can trust him. See, Jesus says to John, his first words are, fear not. See, this is our king. We just don't know how kind Jesus is. Friends, we don't know how kind Jesus is. The same Jesus that walked the earth is now in heaven, and he is consistent to how he was on earth. I mentioned this several weeks ago, but Dane Ortland says, The risen Lord alive and well in heaven is not somehow less approachable and less compassionate than he was when he walked on earth. So Jesus' first words are, Fear not. So to the churches in this day and these seven churches, yes, you are suffering. Yes, you are struggling. Yes, times are strange and weird and harsh people are ruling. But those churches and this church today, we need to know that Jesus himself is among us and we don't need to be afraid. And in this encounter, Jesus begins to speak to John these, these statements. And so he begins by saying, fear not, but he goes on. He says, I am the first and I am the last. 
First and last don't translate for us. But the, the design for these listeners that are hearing this is that he is the alpha and that he is the omega. He is the first letter and he is the last le- letter of the Greek, Greek al- alphabet. So this statement is de- designated to communicate that he is all comprehensive. He's the beginning and the end. He is everything in between. He is fully and completely God, implying that he holds it all together. He is absolute sovereign rule over all. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. You know, from a Greek perspective, there's layers to God. You have Hermes, you have Aphrodite, you have Apollo, you have uh, 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 Zeus, all kinds of different gods who have different levels of power. But it's not so in the Hebrew understanding of God. Whoever existed in the beginning is fully and completely God. And and Jesus is saying, I am the first and I am the last. I am fully God. And then he says, I'm the living one. He says, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And this is a powerful line that Jesus uses here. He says, because I rose, I took the keys from the dragon I ripped them out of his hands, and I now hold the keys of death, and I have power over them. These keys are mine. Again, imagine a church that's fearing their lives from Domitian, who's ruling that day. This greater emperor shows up and says, no, I have the keys of death and Hades. This is not something that Nero can say. This is not something that the Dominician can say. I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is a powerful statement that Jesus is making. And that's the hope that he's trying to communicate to this church, that, that he has the keys, that nothing can hold the people of Jesus down. It's so ironic that, that John's on this island to be silenced, to be put in isolation, to be rejected for the rest of his life. And he sought to, to maintain faith and to lean into Jesus. And Jesus shows up to him. And in response, he gets this crazy revelation of courage to the church. That though they try to separate him, though they try to put him on an island, Jesus shows up and this revelation becomes an encouragement to these seven churches and an encouragement to us. And, and Jesus tells John to tell these churches all about this. That they need to remember who I am so that they will not grow weary and give up amidst the difficulty that they're facing. To the best answer I can give you in good times and in bad times is to trust in this Jesus. And there's something powerful about this encounter as we begin this journey through the book of Revelation, this encounter that John has with Jesus. For me personally, there's something profound about this encounter. I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again as a part of my story. I was introduced to porn at a very young age. I was, this is pre-iPhone, this is uh, back in the, the good old days when you didn't have a phone connected to you at your hip. But I went to a random kid's birthday party, and at the birthday party, the, a bunch of Playboys were brought in. And the parents weren't really there, and, and man, we were eight years old. And that was my first experience um, with, with pornography. And it didn't take long for me to become all too addicted to it um, over the next 15 years of my, my life, through my teens and into my early 20s, and on my road to healing in my early 20s. And there were many things that I tried to do to overcome. 
There were many things. There was, you know, the accountability. I was, I was trying to follow Jesus during this time. I put up uh, all kinds of blocks and all kinds of protective mechanisms and tried to grit my teeth to get through it. But there was nothing, and I mean nothing, that had the power to free my grip from the draw towards porn than beholding the tender, powerful, risen Jesus, who my soul was made for. I mean, life's hard. Pressures are real. Temptations are powerful. Anxiety is no joke. Sin is destructive. And there's something about Jesus that can heal and change and liberate and restore and renew. And I want to belittle that. And as we look at this encounter that we see with John and Jesus, man, it's this tender care and his powerful arm that slowly began to free my grip from the addiction that I found myself in. Yeah, boundaries were critical. Accountability was a must for me and is a must for us. But man, there was one thing that gave me the power at a soul level to be freed from the chains that I felt for those years. This is what Revelation's about. It's about Jesus. It's about courage to press on. It's about being freed from our chains that we feel and the the agony that we feel from walking through this life at times. See, the same Jesus that encountered John is alive today. His spirit is at work among us. What Jesus offers John, what he offers the seven churches, he uh, he also offers us. It's not an easy way out to our problems. It's not a get out real quick. It takes time and work and energy and effort, yes, for sure. But an encounter with himself that speaks to the core of who we are. And for us, you're not too far gone. For us, you're not too broken. For us, you are known. Those eyes like flame of fire, they see John and they see us. For us, we are ridiculously loved. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor principalities, nor rulers, nor things in heaven or earth or under the earth can separate us from the powerful love of Jesus. It's real, and it's offered to us. We have a rescuer who is among us, who will come again, and who cares about us like he cared about John. Yeah, that solar eclipse was unique, but this encounter that John has in Revelation causes the church to find courage and wonder. So as we close, I just, as I was just praying through this, I just was reminded of this passage that, it's interesting, um, Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus, and that letter is called Ephesians. Um, And he also, uh, that church also received one of these letters that Jesus, um, that of the revelation that we're reading right now. And, and in this, this letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he begins and he prays for them that the eyes of their hearts will be opened to know Jesus more. Man, as we go through this series, my one hope is that we would know Jesus a little, a little bit more. And as we close our time and as Trevor comes up, I want to just invite you to close your eyes. And in your own way, I just want to take a moment and invite you to Open your hands like you're receiving a gift. And I want to pray this prayer for me and for us as we close our time together. In Ephesians 1, 
17, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So, Father, it's my prayer for my friends, for us, for our community. Lord, you would awaken wonder in our hearts toward Christ. Father, this life is hard, it's painful, it can make us weary. Faith is not easy. But we confess we want to know you. We confess we want to follow you. We confess we want to know your love more deeply. And God, I ask that you would fill our hearts. Renew us with your care and your kindness and your love. We give you thanks for this picture of Jesus. Behold, he is alive forevermore. He is the keys of death and Hades. We give you thanks that you are at work and you will finish what you've started. Give us strength along the way. We bless you, Jesus. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.